So we're carrying on very much in the vein of the way God's led us in our worship this morning. We're going to be uh, teaching from uh, Ephesians chapter 4, and I'm going to read from the text straight away. So we're calling this series The Power of One, and it's based on this uh, verse, particularly verse 4 of these verses I'm going to read just now. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So we're doing this series, The Power of One, and it's really about helping us to live the Christian life by understanding who God is and what is central to his purposes and plans. And we've looked at this idea of the church being one body. We've looked at the idea of there being one hope. Do you remember the rope of hope? Do you remember? Yeah, that was a great message, wasn't it? Listen to that one if you didn't listen to it. One baptism celebrated through, through going through water to celebrate that we're baptized, immersed in Christ. One faith, one set of truths that we believe together as Christians, whether you're part of King's Church or any other Christian church in the world, you say, this I believe. And now we're moving on to this final three. We've adjusted the order slightly because what we want to talk about today is one Lord... And then in the next two weeks, we're going to talk about one Father and one Spirit. And what you see in these verses is, like you do so many other places in the Bible, an implicit reference to this thing that Christians, that theologians call the Trinity. That there's a Father, there's Jesus, the Lord. We'll come on to see that's who that Lord is talking about. And then there's God, the Holy Spirit. And these are complicated things. So you've got One Lord, one Spirit, one Father. How many gods? One. That's confusing already, isn't it? One God in three persons. Explain that to a child. I'll challenge you. And here's here's the thing about the Christian faith. God is so vast and beyond us, even when we begin to explain these things, it should, with humility, leave us thinking, God, would you help me to understand And if you're maturing in the Christian faith, the older you get, it feels to me the less I understand of his greatness as I come to terms with it more and more. I remember reading a book a few years ago, and it was one of those sort of cool new Christian books that was trying to deconstruct the Christian faith and say, well, it was just full of questions. Beginning to end, it was really frustrating. He didn't answer any, he just asked questions. And this is one of his questions he asked. He said, said, well, the Bible doesn't mention the word Trinity, so does it matter if I believe in the Trinity? Does it matter if I believe that Jesus and the Father and the Spirit are all equal? Does it matter? And here was the question. I thought, well, what a ridiculous question. I don't think Paul ever took the approach, well, why don't we just get down to the lowest common denominator here and see the minimum that we could possibly believe, something about God and something about love. No, he never did that. In fact, he said, no, there's one Lord, there's one Father, there's one Spirit, there's one faith to be believed in, there's one... He's clear He wants us to know more, not less. So here's the question. When we're talking about the Lord, in what way is he different than the Father and the Spirit? Because that's what we're talking about today. And we're not going to get into the, the fullness of the Father and the Spirit. We'll do that another week. But here's one very obvious difference. 
the Father and the Spirit are both invisible. Jesus said, no one has ever seen the Father except the one who is sent from the Father. Nobody's ever seen him. 1 Timothy 6 says that he lives in unapproachable light. That's the God that we worship. He, he can't be approached other than through the person of Jesus. Beware of any kind of uh, fluffy kind of view of God that says, oh, he, he just bounces me on, on his knee. He's God. He's unapproachable except for Jesus. And the Spirit, Jesus says, well, the wind blows wherever it pleases. You know, we, we, we don't know where he's coming from, going to. We hear, we, we see the fruit of the Holy Spirit. We see the power of the Holy Spirit. We see the evidence of creation of the, the might and work of all that he does. We see healing, but we don't see the Spirit. But when we talk about the Lord, we're talking about Jesus, the Son of God. We're talking about God in the flesh. We're talking about the one who came from heaven to earth. And this is the primary way that the Apostle Paul viewed Jesus. So if you're wondering, well, how do we know that reference Lord is about Jesus? Just read the book of Ephesians in your spare time. You'll find in Ephesians 1 verse 2, he says, Grace and peace to you from the Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 3, he says, uh, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 15 of chapter 1, he says, I'm talking about your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 17 of chapter 1, he talks about the God of our Lord Jesus Christ. It goes on and on and on. Whenever Paul mentions the word Lord, it's just his shorthand for Jesus. But it also shows us something very important about how he viewed him. The primary way that Paul viewed Jesus was his Lord, was his master, now, there are other adjectives he could have used. He, he could have called Jesus his friend. Jesus is the friend of sinners. He could have called Jesus his brother. He's the eldest brother for Christians. He could have called him saviour, rescuer, Christ. But this is the adjective that happens again and again, Lord, Lord, Lord. This is the way you and me are called to relate to Jesus. He's our Lord. I'm just amazed how we've been led in the worship this morning. I feel like most of my content has been covered already, to be honest, by all the contributions that have come. It's always slightly disconcerting when that happens. I thought, yeah, there's that and that. Okay, I'll try and keep this short, just because uh, we've, we've covered most of it already. So here's the question today. How do you relate to God, and are you calling him your Lord? It seems to me we spend our life asking that question, who's in charge around here? Do you remember being a toddler? Those first memories where, do you remember that first time you looked in your mum or dad's eye just when they told you, don't you dare do that? And you looked at them back and you thought, no, this could be fun. You thought, I'm going to do it anyway. And the question you really ask is, well, who's in charge around here? Do I have to do what they say or can I do what I want? And as you grow up, that's a, that's a constant pattern. I remember I was getting a little irate with one of my kids uh, a few weeks ago. Because I'd called them for dinner a number of times, and they just hadn't responded. So by the time they finally waltzed down the stairs, and I, I was you, you didn't respond to the last ten times I asked you, I was slightly wound up at this point. And, uh, and my daughter, she just said to me, she said, well, Dad, you know, I feel you took the wrong approach here. 
She said, if you just shout at us all the time, of course we're not going to respond. She she was taking issue with my parenting style. (laughs) And there's that thing, isn't there, of just who's in charge around here? I I assured her that this that I was in charge, and she had to do what, what I was asking her to do. But teenagers, they're constantly pushing boundaries. Maybe it comes into later life in a new peer group. There's that sort of jostling around thing. Well, who's going to be the more vocal one? Who's going to really take leadership in this situation? Or when you started your first job, if you're working, and you're kind of figuring out, I remember my first job, and you're trying to figure out, well, who's really in charge around here? Yeah, I do work for that person, but who's the person that I really need to make sure that I don't drop the ball before? And usually that guy's sitting in the corner office, slightly grumpy character. People come out of his office stewing when they talk to him or her. And uh, you see... We need to know who's in charge. And the truth is this. In the overall picture of our lives, all of us have somebody or something that we serve. Bob Dylan, the songwriter, put it this way. He says, you've got to serve somebody. Everybody's got to serve somebody. It might be the devil or it might be the Lord, but you serve somebody. And the question isn't today whether you worship and serve and love Jesus or whether you don't. The question is, who or what do you worship and give your life to? So today we're going to look at this idea of Jesus the Lord and the call he has on our lives. So uh, we're just going to start with a little bit of Greek. Is that, is that okay? Up for a bit of Greek. I, I, just, I know actually some of you read your Bibles, your New Testament is in Greek because you're far more educated than me or many of us here. This isn't going to be a deep Greek lesson. There's a word in the New Testament for Lord. When it talks about there being one Lord, it's a very simple word, kyrios. And it, here's the thing we need to know about the word. It's, it's just an everyday word in the Greek language that the Bible was written in. I say that because when we use the word Lord today, in our culture, you kind of might think, of, well, there's the house of lords. And that implies distance, People who are unelected, somehow representing you, but distant and far away. I, if I should ask for a show of hands, who knows a lord here or a laird? The answer would be, oh, somebody, anybody? I don't know, maybe one or two of you might. But the truth is this, there's a distance about that term because of the, the connotations of that word in our culture that would have been foreign to the New Testament. So in New Testament speak in Greek or Roman households the Lord was the master he was the head of the household he was the master of the house he was that guy who was in charge of his household and the household wasn't just a family it was all the people in that household so the, the, the master he would have been married typically and and this role in that culture at that time would have been understood this way. He was fully responsible for the well-being and care of his marriage and his wife. And he was fully responsible for his children and for their education and their well-being growing up to make sure that they were provided for. And he was fully responsible for the servants in his house to make sure that they were looked after and their needs were met. And he was fully responsible for any uh, younger unmarried women in his household. And he had a primary responsibility to try and help them find marriage partners and to pay the price for them because dowries would have been required in those days. So the master of the house would have paid to enable unmarried women in his household to be married. 
Also, if you were a member of the master's household and you found yourself wound up in court, accused of something, it was the full expectation that the master of the house would come down and represent you. And if you got yourself fined or punished or in debt, then the master of the house would say, well, this is my responsibility, I need to sort it out. Now, it's helpful to understand some of that language because when we talk about there being one Lord Jesus. Here's something we're to know, that he's not a distant Lord. He's not a Lord who sits in an upper chamber somewhere of heaven and has very little to do with the people. He's a Lord who represents you and me in every way. In the courtroom of heaven, he represents you and I to the Father. You know, he cares more about your well-being than you do. He's the master of your house. He's the master of your life. He cares about your family. He cares about your marital status. He cares about your love life or lack of it. He cares about your children. He cares. He loves you. He's a caring, loving Lord. He's the great shepherd who cares for his sheep. This term kyrios implies the very best of servant leadership and care for his people. And here's what we understand about Jesus. He didn't come to lord it over us, but he came to bring us into his family. For some of you today, the, the thing that puts you off becoming a Christian is, I don't want to load more rules in my life. But here's the wonder of becoming a Christian. You get in his household, and he cares for you, and he loves you. And everything he says is for your good, and he represents you, and he knows you. I love this verse, 1 Peter 5, verse 7. It says, cast all your cares on him, on Jesus. Cast all your cares on him. Why? Is it because God is powerful? Well, he could have said that, couldn't he? Because God is powerful. Is it because God is able? Because he is. Is it, do we cast all our cares on God, on Jesus, because he needs that role. He needs to be needed, Jesus. So we cast our cares on him because that makes him feel good about himself. No, it doesn't say that. It says, cast all your cares on him because he cares for you. Wow. Jesus cares for you. His lordship is symbolized by his care for you, his love for you. And his lordship over our city and our nation is this, that he wants to bring many, many more people into his family. His disciples didn't quite understand it because they knew he was the Lord. But throughout his earthly ministry, his disciples would say, Jesus, when you come in your glory, could we have uh, position one on your left and position two on your right? And he says, you don't get it. And then he took a towel one day and he started washing their feet and they were utterly horrified. And Peter says to him, Lord, what are you doing? Are you going to do this for me? And Jesus says, I, I must do this for you. See, if Jesus is going to be your Lord, you need to let him serve you. You need to let him take your sin and to help you. So here's that, that, that first sense then. He's, he's the Lord who cares for us. He's the master of your house. But then there's this other thing. So uh, the Old Testament was written down in the language of Hebrew. And 
in New Testament times, that wasn't the, the language of the day. So there were people who did that brilliant work of Bible translating the Old Testament, like some people do today, like Josh Oldfield, who translates the, old in, who translates the Bible into languages it's not done. And somebody took the Old Testament, or a team of scholars, and they translated it into the Greek so that people around in New Testament times could understand what the Bible taught, what the Old Testament taught. Now, in that Old Testament, there was a word for God. It was the covenant name for God. And that word is Yahweh. If you, if you read a, an English translation, you might come across the word Yahweh. It might be Jehovah in some Bibles. And in some Bibles, they just simply write the word Lord in capital letters. And it was this covenant name for God that Israel came to understand that he was the Lord of everything. He was the Lord of Israel's armies. He was the one who went before them. He was the one who was the Lord of all of the planets, all of the angels. He was the Lord of all resources. And whenever they came across that word and translated it into the Greek New Testament, they translated it with this same word, Kyrios, Lord. And you think, well, that, that could have caused some confusion there because the word Lord was an incredibly special term in the Old Testament referring to God and uniquely God. And it got used in a number of ways in the New Testament. So what we understand by that is this, that whenever they translated that word, they also very deliberately, when Jesus was in the frame, they made it clear that whenever he, they were talking about him being the Lord, they also referenced it to the Old Testament Lord Yahweh, Lord of hosts. So, for example, when John the Baptist um, came, and it was said of him in Mark chapter 1, it, describing him, this is a quote from Isaiah 40, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. So this is John the Baptist's remit to make straight paths for the Lord, capital letters, Lord of hosts, Yahweh, Jehovah. And Mark is being clear, well, John the Baptist's ministry was to prepare the way for Jesus. Jesus is that same Lord. He's the Lord of hosts. He's the Lord Yahweh. He's Jehovah. And we see that right from the earliest verses of Luke chapter 2. So Jesus, the baby, born in a manger. The angels announce his birth, and this is what they say. Today a saviour has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. Christ Kyrios. This is what they're saying about it. This is before he could have ever received a title or become the head of a household. He was Christ the Lord from eternity past, coming into the world. But what we also see about Jesus is that he displayed his lordship over every sphere and over every area. So if, you, if Jesus is Yahweh, then we'd expect this, that he displays incredible power. Wouldn't that be right? And do we find that? Well... Here you find throughout the pages of the gospel, I'm just going to quote a few. You find that he's the Lord of sickness. You find he's the Lord over sickness. In Matthew 8, you find a, a leper comes to him. And he says, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. Heal me. And Jesus says these wonderful words. He says, I am willing. What do we know about this Lord Jesus He's willing to heal. He's able to heal. And he does heal. And he cleansed him. He healed him. You find that he's the Lord over the storms. 
Matthew chapter 8, verse 25, when his disciples were busy drowning in a boat and Jesus was asleep because he wasn't so worried about the situation, they said, Lord, don't you care that we're going to drown? And Jesus gets up and he rebukes the wind and the waves and the storm. And then he rebukes the disciples and says, why didn't you have more faith? You see, Jesus is the Lord over the storms. Do you know there's nothing that can go on in this world or in your life that Jesus doesn't have say over? He's the Lord. He's the Lord. He's the Lord of the stars. We sang it earlier. He's the Lord of lords and the King of kings. In him, the fullness of God lives in bodily form. He's the Lord over seeing, of sight. He could open blind eyes. He, he came to a couple of people who couldn't see, and he says, he says, would you like to see? And these two guys, they said, yes, Lord, because they knew that he had the power to do that. I was reading uh, recently uh, Brother Andrew's book on, called God's Smuggler. I don't know if you read that book. It's a, it's a great book, a classic. And it's about his journey of smuggling Bibles into uh, what were Eastern European countries before that anybody was allowed Bibles there under the communist regime. So he would smuggle thousands and thousands of Bibles with his team every year. And every time they went through a checkpoint, he said, we would pray the smuggler's prayer. And uh, this is it, I'm trying to get it from memory. He said, Lord, we know in the Bible that you could make blind eyes see. As we go through this checkpoint, we pray that you'd make seeing eyes blind. (laughs) And he says, literally, he would open his suitcase when asked, and there would be hundreds of New Testaments and Bibles that would have been confiscated had they seen them. And they would look through them and they'd say, yep, this looks fine. Because God is the God of sight. He's the God of seeing. He's the God who can make you see things or make you not. Ask God to open the eyes of your heart if you're struggling to see. Yeah, he's described as being the Lord of the harvest. He's in charge of workers being sent and the harvest ripening. He's also called the Lord of the Sabbath. In Matthew 12, verse 8, he's picking grain with his disciples on the Sabbath. And people say, aha, he's breaking his own laws. And Jesus says, I made the laws. I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. Do you know, Jesus is bigger than any law. He's he's bigger than the laws of gravity because he ascended to heaven. He's bigger than the laws of physics because in his resurrected body he could walk through walls. He's bigger than any rule or any confinement you could put on him. He's the Lord. He's the Lord over spirit powers of demons who would torment people in Jesus' day. And people would come to him and say, Lord, would, would would you get rid of this demon, please? And the demons would tremble when confronted with Jesus, and they would call him Lord. There's no light and dark, yin and yang, good and evil, Jesus and the devil. No, no, Jesus is more powerful than any evil force of opposition that you could come across. Do you know there's no force of evil in your life that Jesus is not more than a match for? 
In fact, it says on the cross, he made a public spectacle of every demonic power through the cross. He is more powerful. He's the Lord. He's, uh, we're hearing today, he's the Lord of the children. He says, let the children come to me. He's not just the Lord of the adults. He says, let the children come to me. And you know those same children, sometime later, came and put palm branches at his feet and they, they welcomed him into Jerusalem. And he says, from the lips of infants and children, you have ordained praise. He's the Lord of children. He's the Lord who is the best king ever. King David, who was the greatest king of Old Testament times, described Jesus the Messiah as his Lord. He's greater than any human kingly authority you could come across. He's more powerful than any monarch. More than that, he's the Lord of life. He's risen from the dead. Death couldn't hold him down. He's now exalted to the highest place. And Paul says in Philippians 2, at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Do you know there's not a name that competes with the name of Jesus today? Do you agree? Amen. See, Jesus is Lord of lords and King of kings. I love sometimes reading through the old hymn book. And I came across this one by Charles Wesley. And he just compacts so much into it. He says, Jesus, the name high over all in hell or earth or sky, angels and men before it fall and devils fear and fly. Jesus, the name to sinners dear, the name to sinners given, it scatters all their guilty fear, it brings them peace of heaven. Jesus, the prisoner's fetters breaks and bruises Satan's head, power into strengthless souls he speaks and life into the dead. See, he's Lord. He's Lord. He's the most powerful, wonderful, one Lord we could ever know. And that's the one we're being called into allegiance with today, this one Lord. So, let's uh, begin to apply this. So, in, uh, when Paul wrote this phrase, one Lord, no doubt he was a Jewish scholar, so uppermost in his mind would have been the phrase from Deuteronomy chapter 6. He knew his Old Testament very well. And this is the phrase that would come to mind. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road and when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. Here was the command given by God to ancient Israel. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. He's one Lord. Make sure you do everything in your power to protect this truth in your life. They lived in a world full of idolatry, full of other competing gods from neighboring countries and peoples. And God is giving them this this instruction. He says, don't fall into that. Make sure that you keep your eye on the one Lord. The Apostle Paul lived in the Roman world full of its gods. And here was the idea that if you were going on a sea voyage, you'd talk to Neptune about it. If you were doing a business transaction, you'd talk to Mercury about it. If you were going to war, you'd 
talk to Mars about it. If you were getting married, you'd talk to uh, Venus about it. And here was the idea. You had your go-to gods. Here's what God says. says, no, you don't need all those other gods. They're false gods. You need the one God, the one Lord. Ancient Israel had fertility gods, weather gods, harvest gods. And here was the idea. Don't put all your eggs in one basket. Spread your beliefs. Spread your security. And, of course, you'd never go to Mars if you had a marriage problem. Not unless you wanted a war on your hands. You'd never go to Mercury. You'd never go to Venus about a business transaction unless you wanted to fall in love with your business partner. No, this was the sort of world they lived in. The Lord is one. Put all your eggs in his basket. Trust him and him alone. Now, we don't have statues in our culture that we worship. We've kind of moved on from that. We're pretty rational these days. We understand that, that those things aren't, aren't going to help us. But we can simply, simply spread our load out onto other things. We can say, you know what, I love Jesus, and I, but he's not so good with money, is he? You know, if, I, if I'm going to sort my finances out, then I, I'm going to have to look to some other helps here. And there are great helps available. There's financial advice and things that are good and important. You know, we can say, oh, well, Jesus, he's good at worship and stuff like that, isn't he? But, you know, what I really need is healing. What I really need is the doctor. What I need is the NHS. And you probably do need the NHS and a doctor. All of those things are God-given things and wonderful things that you should use. But... Here's this, when we start putting our trust in things that are inherently not fully worthy of our trust, they let us down. See, nobody in the NHS will ever promise you they're going to sort you out forever. Doctors patch us up and move us on. Financial advisors, they they help us manage our stuff and bankers and all those things, but... I'd never go to my bank manager and say, look, I'm just trusting you with all of my money here, all of my family. No, I'd never say that because God wants us to trust him. Let me ask you today, you're trusting him with your health, with your physical health, with your mental health, with your emotional health. Are you trusting him with your finances? Are you trusting him with your love life? Are you, trans- are you trusting him with, with whatever issue you're facing in your life? Because he knows all of your needs and he wants you to trust him because he's your Lord. So here's the idea. If, if he's the one Lord then he's Lord of your life and he has a call on your life. And either he's Lord of all or he's not Lord at all. And therefore, if you're going to have something to take away from this message, it's this. Are you making him your Lord in every area of your life? Is there anything that you're holding out on him? And For most of us, there'll be those things that come up from time to time where we say, yeah, actually, there is that thing. And 
question is, well, what does it look like for us to make Jesus Lord? I sometimes hear Christians say these things these days. They say, well, you know what? I have no problem at all with this because Jesus is my Lord. I really struggle with what he says in the Bible, but you know, I love Jesus. As if that can be different somehow. As if you can love Jesus and not love what he says or, or understand that he says those things. And Jesus said this in Luke chapter 6. He says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? For everyone who comes to me and hears my words and puts them into practice is like a, a wise builder who builds his house on the rock. He says, the person who doesn't hear what I say and put into practice, the person who says, Lord, Lord, but doesn't do anything, is like the one who built his house on the sand, and we know what happened to that house. See, following the Jesus of the Bible is so important if we're to call him Lord, Lord. I find it just so helpful to read a few verses each day and to just, so oftentimes I'll just find, I'll read a couple of verses, I'll say, Lord, what do I do with this today? And he'll just give me an application point. Corrie Ten Boom says, don't bother to give God instructions, simply report for duty. That's what we do when we read the Bible. We, 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 we don't look to put our own um, angle on it or slant, we look to be instructed by God. Here's the, the second thing we uh, so we, we let scripture shape us if we're going to call him Lord. Here's the other thing. We get led by the Spirit. And let me just ask you the question. When's the last time you felt a prompting of the Holy Spirit and followed through on it? And I know those things can be sometimes hard to discern and know, but Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice. And it should be our expectation as Christians, day to day, week to week, that we feel God sometimes prompt us to do things that might look us a little foolish, but we're to follow through on them. I remember about 20 years ago when I, I, I was just a student at the time, and I was kind of learning this thing of just wanting to be responsive to God in the moment. I was traveling home, a six-hour journey to travel home from, from university. And I got about half an hour into my journey, and I just felt an impression from God saying, well, no, don't do it today, Dan. I'd like you to wait till tomorrow. And I struggled with it because I was kind of half an hour in. I thought, well, I've, you know, I'm nearly there, you know. And, but anyway, I, I kind of resolved, well, you know what? I, I'm going to go back. And I, I stayed another night. And I'd love to say that there was some great news item that kind of would have verified exactly why I didn't travel that day. There was some big pile up on the M1 or something. I thought, oh, thank you, God, that you saved me. There wasn't anything. The only takeaway from that was this, that if God asks me to do something, I just need to do it. And that's how we learn obedience. And in subsequent stages of life, when he's asked me to do things that have had higher risk associated with them, I'm more comfortable to do it because I'm learning obedience. Let me ask you, are you a man or a woman who is learning obedience to the promptings of the Holy Spirit? Here's the third and final uh, thing. So we, uh, we, we obey Scripture, we obey the Spirit, and we, we, we recognize his lordship over our community. It's not an individual pursuit. There's a synergy about the lordship of Jesus that we're called together. We read in those verses in Ephesians 4 about pursuing the unity of the Spirit. 
See, it'd be a lot easier if it was just me and my Lord, you and your Lord. But Jesus says, no, I'm all of your lords. Therefore, you need to get along together. The wonderful thing is that's one of the most defining things about us as a community. We have one Lord and his name is Jesus. And today, even though you might struggle with all of the relationships across Christendom or even this church, I think, oh, I don't totally get on with all of those. Here's the thing. We have one Lord and it's the most unifying thing we can know. So let me ask you today, are you following this one Lord? Maybe the band could come and join us. We're going to close with a song in just a moment. There's a a well-known story in the Old Testament in 1 Kings 18, and it's the story of Elijah and the prophets of Baal. And Elijah challenges the people of Israel who have moved far from God, the true God, to worship statues called Baals. And he challenges, um, he challenges the prophets to a duel. And he says, choose this day who you're going to serve. If Baal is God, worship your statue, do it. But if God is God, then worship him. How long will you waver between two opinions? And so they have a contest. And the prophets of Baal, they dance around their altar all day. And there's this sad, empty verse of scripture that simply says this, but nobody answered. No fire came because they were talking to an empty idol. Meanwhile, Elijah calls on the true God and that true God sends fire and burns up a soaking wet sacrifice because he's the true God. And here's the thing for you and I today. Here's the real problem with idolatry and worshipping things that are not the true Lord. The danger is this, they will let you down. And in the moment you need them the most to answer you, they will be silent. Whereas the one Lord, Jesus Christ, will never go cold on you. He'll always be near you. He'll always help you in your time of need. And that's most demonstrated through him coming from heaven to earth to die on a cross for our sins in the moment of our greatest need.